This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. And today I'm joined by Dr. Shifra Aiken, who teaches um, at the Department of Irish and Celtic Studies in Queen's University, Belfast. Dr. Aiken completed her BA in European Studies at Trinity College, Dublin, and then went on to study for her MA and PhD at the National University of Ireland, Galway, after which she also worked as a Fulbright Scholar before coming to Queen's. Dr. Aiken, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Aidan, for having me. Sure, sure. So we're here to talk about your book, Spiritual Wounds. Um, and I might start by just having you tell us, what is this book about? Yeah. Um, well, essentially, I was always interested in um, the fact that the Irish Civil War was followed by this idea of silence, um, particularly growing up that um, it was too contentious to speak about that so many veterans and public figures pre- preferred to let sleeping dogs lie, I suppose, and to relegate this to 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 the realm of um, oblivion, I suppose. Um, so really, what what I wanted to do was to explore this idea of the silence and the myth of silence. Um, and I started off by pi- compiling lists of works that had addressed the civil war. Um, and what I realised quite quickly was that there was a huge wealth of material that hadn't been really scrutinised in any um any comprehensive way previous to this um and then the, the project really developed and um, because of the wealth of, of, of the material so that the i suppose i started off gathering any any kind of um accounts relating to the civil war and um, but i was able to narrow that down for for the book then and i was able to focus solely on veteran testimonies based on first-hand experience but looking how a lot of veterans actually um Look, wrote, wrote about their experiences in indirect ways and coded ways and particularly by um, adopting fictionalised forms. So essentially the, the book is an exploration of that tension of how there were these calls for to forget the Civil War, the contentious events of the Civil War, which was in 1922-23 at an official level and how those calls to forget were matched by a real unwillingness um, to accept that uh, reticence but that many veterans had to adopt creative ways in order to address their experience because of this emphasis on silence. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to think about, like how memory and forgetting always go together. Um, a lot of my work, because I was being in, in Irish studies, I, I've done a lot of work on, on Israeli history. Um, and there's a kind of a famous phrase that David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, made once where he, he was talking to a group of recently arrived um, immigrants or refugees, whatever you want to call them, um, from Morocco who were Jewish. And he said, you must forget that you are Moroccan, just as I have forgotten that I am Polish, which if you know anything about logic is sort of you can't forget something if you're saying that you remember it. Uh, and that whole thing of like memory and forgetting has become very popular, I think, in Irish Irish studies in general. So I'm wondering, how, how do you feel your work adds to that? Or what, what are you doing that's new? What are you doing that's building on what's come before? Um, absolutely, yeah. I was able to draw on what, what had come before. I suppose there has been a, an explosion maybe in, in memory studies in, in recent years. Um, Una Frawley in particular in, in, in Irish studies has been uh, really central in terms of <clears throat> um, putting together a number of edited collections. Um, and what's interesting with the, the memory studies field is that it's, it's very interdisciplinary and it's looking both at scientific models of how um, memory operates as well as looking at various forms of, of literature and creative responses and, and ways of uh, rep, means of representation I suppose um, but when I was um, we're working on the project actually um, Guy Biner also published his uh, really significant book forgetful remembrance um and what guy biner has done essentially in the international field of memory studies is he's shifted away from an emphasis on memory to an emphasis on forgetting and and i suppose um put together um methodologies in order to to unpack this idea of forgetful remembrance that that what communities do when there are these uncomfortable memories and how that they are on one hand repressed but that they linger on in these um non-conventional ways and um, so I was able to tap into that in a way because that really spoke to the project that, that I was working on and that work has been really significant I suppose in terms of what I, what I do and how is it, it different um, I think what I, what this book really is about of, there's there's memory there's forgetting there's marginalization but it's it's a testimony I think and trauma and, te- and that's the, the, the subtitle of the book it's spiritual wounds trauma testimony in the Irish Civil War but that that's what what um is my interest here. So that idea of testimony is um, an account that um, reflects on often from personal experience, um, but also that is presented to the public with some kind of maybe moral or ethical concern. It's, it, it, it's, there's a, there's a political meaning oftentimes behind it, the testimony in, in its um, presentation to the public. And um, so I was, I was interested in that. And I suppose what I've done is I've, I've probably broadened understanding of what testimony is. And I think um, this is something that maybe um, will be uh, picked up on and people have different ideas on this but I suppose in, t- testimony can be seen as quite quite traditional in that it should be first person testimony and um, f- fit within certain um, generic I suppose categorizations what I'm looking at here is how testimony can be um, found in very obscure ways in obscure forms particularly in fictionalized forms and that, that brings up all sorts of questions because if a testimony is meant to attest to something that's true and go be presented in the public sphere as a true account then how does that operate when it's under a, a, a layer of fiction um so that that's something that i had to grapple with but what i um, did for this book is, is broaden that idea of testimony to look at all of these unconventional forms and um, that veterans use in order to, to testify to their experiences and then i suppose in terms of, of trauma um and 
trauma, I think, is a very tricky um, field and tricky topic to, to grapple with. It's it's um, again, it's, it's something that um, is quite dominant now, in, particularly in let's say um, considerations of contemporary literature. And I think that it's often maybe used uh, too carelessly as a term. Um, so I think another thing that I was trying to do was trying to establish a, a framework for how to think of trauma in the context of 1920s Ireland when the vocabulary of trauma didn't exist. So that 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 were were um that it is quite a dangerous thing to do to to put later ideas and concepts um um in, in place um in a historical context. But that said, the 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 notion of trauma is so central to the legacy of the Irish Civil War um that it, it is something that needs to be addressed. Why is it that the Irish Civil War is associated with trauma in the in the collective imagination anyway um to this day and why veterans even from the 60s on were, were attaching the language of trauma onto onto the, the Irish Civil War so it did it was used by veterans but obviously not in the 1920s so looking at that and how trauma is is really political in terms of whose trauma is validated and whose trauma is not validated um, and again it's all about response to um to um yeah anyone like any like testimony it's about who's responding to it and how is it received by the public and how some people's stories are validated and some people's pain is validated whereas others may have um may struggle to be to be heard so so i might ask you to talk a little bit more about this these kind of two interrelated themes of, of what is the political meaning of these testimonies and the fact that they're all very first person personal narratives one thing I found very fascinating about the text you use, but also perhaps a little bit odd, is that they're they're Civil War texts, right? So they're either written in the context of written in the time of the Civil War, or they're actually direct memories of the Civil War. But they don't ever seem to devote too much attention to a lot of the conventional political issues that we associate with the Irish Civil War, right? They don't talk. It seems to me, at least from from the way you analyze them, they don't talk about you know, the oath to the king or partition um, or like Ireland's international status or the treaty ports. Uh, and they seem to focus way more on, on sort of interiority and, and, and personal trauma, as you say. So what, why is that? Is, is this another kind of forgetting where they're, they're kind of leaving aside conventional political questions um, in favor of, of these in individual emotional questions? Or they, do, do these still remain kind of political texts in some way? Mm. Um, yeah, so it's, it's the first thing I would say is that um, th- these questions do come up in, in some of, let's say, the the novels and uh, even short stories. That there's often a, a an impulse maybe to educate about the events of the Civil War, so they they will be included. And um, what 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 novels allowed veterans to do was to have multiple characters and give a kind of multivocal response to the Civil War and give different rep- prep, um, responses and reactions to these the treaty debates and the split over the, the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. So there are sections definitely in some of the works. I'm, I'm thinking of Francis Carthy's novel, Legion of the Rear Guard. There's a whole um, quite quite lengthy section actually devoted to the political questions and, and leading political figures. Um, Patrick Malloy similarly, similarly, but not to the same extent. But then there are others who don't opt for that at all. Um, so I think um, what what's interesting here is that these writers are concerned with conveying their own experience, and maybe the maybe the their own experience and what they stands out for them it doesn't tally with what we might be looking for based on what we've read in the history books, maybe, um, and particularly let's say the women's 
writings, there is less emphasis definitely on those big political questions because they're more focused on the, the small questions. There's family splits, whether that's the domestic circumstances um, and so on. And then there's another interesting um difference between some of these narratives some of these narratives will include historical figures and name drop whether that's Damon de Valera and Michael Collins and others will go the opposite and not mention any historical figures I'm thinking of of Jim Phelan um, is an example I I think he mentions one historical figure which is um, the uh, feminist activist uh, Maud Eden who's the only um, historical figure referenced in in his novel from 1936 Um, so I think it's it's a, yeah, absolutely it's something that um that they are wanting to educate, but there there are already maybe history books that they don't need to set out every single detail. But I think the thing to think of as well is um what what really runs through all of these texts and testimonies, even if they're not addressing the conventional political matters that we might associate with the Irish Civil War, is that these are highly political and what's happening here is the personal is the political in, in these the, the personal responses yeah i mean that, that's one of the reasons why i sort of i didn't want to assume that these are just non-political because i, I don't think anything can be non-political and certainly not if you're talking about a civil war uh, and your book has this structure of moving back and forth in, in alternating chapters between male accounts and female accounts so is that kind of decentering of conventional political questions the only major difference or can you tell us more about how how female accounts of the civil war differ from male accounts yeah um, that was a tricky question actually Aidan when I was working on the book and I uh, finally decided you know to have a chapter on the main men's accounts and then followed by chapter on women and I'm still a little bit uncomfortable on that because it still has reinforces some kind of hierarchy that the 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 men's writings are addressed first um but um, what what I tried to do then in the later chapters was to to address both men and women's experiences, and I suppose from from my point of view, um, that is something that I was important to to do because so often in mainstream accounts of the revolutionary period, the emphasis has been on the the male experience, um, um, but then we've got fantastic scholars working on women's history, but often then the women's histories are separate books or separate um, studies. Um, so I wanted to, I suppose, integrate this and maybe present a, a, a model for for addressing um, a broader um, range of experiences within a single book rather than dividing um, between, let's say, a book on men's experiences and a book on women's experiences and so on. Um, but in terms of the, the women's experiences, um, really, really quite remarkable in terms of how they were pushed towards these less conventional forms of, of testimony. And I suppose the lengths, again, that they went to um, in order to document their experience. And I suppose the thing to, to, to say from the start um, is that um, w- women were highly active um, during the Civil War period, that, that they were able to, I suppose, assume roles that maybe they hadn't previously occupied in terms of within the, the Republican movement, and um, particularly women who sided with the anti-treaty side. And there was a, a strong association between the female activists of Common Man and the anti-treaty side. Um, and then following um, the Civil War, and even during the Civil War, they, they, they suffered for that activism. Um, the rates of incarceration of women were far higher during the Civil War than previously um, in the war against the British. Um, and then with the establishment of the, the socially conservative free state, that 
um, radical element is really sidelined from the the, the revolutionary amendments, and it's, it was something that was quite um, uncomfortable, and it's actually still uncomfortable, which is which is something that still surprises me. I think, um, but is we're working on um, an oral history project recently, and it's actually a lot harder to get families to talk about their female relatives during this period and um, that there's still maybe a discomfort of, around this idea that women had these active roles that they were they were breaking I suppose conventional ideas of of, of gender by assuming military roles or, or by aiding the IRA or by, by joining common um, and, so, and there's maybe a, a shame around that in in, in, a, in some context and um, so what was interesting here was with with the women many women did want to document their experiences they kept um, prison diaries they wrote letters they wrote memoirs but securing a publisher was often quite difficult um, and the only w- woman who published a full-length civil war jail memoir was Margaret Buckley was published at the end of the 1930s but before that before the publication of that there were all of these um, fascinating fictionalized accounts that had been published and that really went really were were overlooked they didn't galvanize a huge amount of of, of public debate but really some are quite remarkable Annie P. Smithson wrote a romance novel and three three chapters of it are essentially an account of her own civil war experience really fantastic play then by, by Maureen Cregan which is um uh, an account of the the uh, a, a wife whose husband is on the the civil war the big hunger strike and in at the end of 1923 of republican internees um at the end of end of the civil war um and what's what's complicated here as well um and I'll just uh, it's, it's worth mentioning is that even as these women are breaking silence and boldly testifying to these experiences there's still maybe a concealment um, that they 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 still feel or are still I suppose um, grappling with I suppose um, and maybe a discomfort and a lack of self assurance around their 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 own placing their own I suppose personal experience into into the public domain. Um, and Maureen Cregan is quite an interesting one because although this play seems to be at least autobiographically based, given that it's dedicated to her own husband who was on the, this hunger strike. Um, she was actually far more active than her female protagonist. She was um, at the time a, a messenger for, for anti-Treaty Sinn Féin and she was sent to Paris and Geneva um, in a really significant role. Yes, she places her play in a, in a domestic context, a much more traditional context. Um, and equally, we find then with some of these women that there's double voicing occurring in the in the writing so that there will be a very conservative aspect um, or conformist aspect to a, a story or an account um, that will then um, be a buffer for the more subversive subtext, I suppose. Um, and Marini Groth is an interesting example of that in her short story collection in that some of the stories, um, and it's on Wurtzer Hargeschild Ella, the the two brothers and some stories and other stories that some of the stories are quite conventional in, in, in their ideas of let's say maternal sacrifice within within I suppose a Republican imagination but then there are other um, stories that are really critical of the hostility shown towards women within the institutions of the new state and then equally some of these women though they were highly active and boldly testifying to this experience and critiquing the mainstream some of them were also involved in writing maybe more standard um historical works, whether that be school textbooks, and um, whether that be um Dorothy McCardley who wrote The Irish Republic, writing these texts that 
I suppose, reinforce the the established narrative while their other writings contested it. Um, so it, it brings up really interesting tensions that, that just speaks, speaks to that discomfort that still is evident to this day around female activism. Yeah, there's such a kind of a, an obvious and very blatant contrast between this idea that you start off kind of critiquing of this notion that no one wants to talk about the civil war and then just the sheer number of texts that you're able to uncover where, where they're directly talking about the civil war. And obviously there's there's multiple voices, multiple kind of perspectives in these texts. Some are radical, some are conservative. There's male and female voices and so on. And obviously you could you could interpret those texts in a number of different ways, I assume. But one one very interesting methodology that I really was fascinated by in your book is this use of like just people's handwritten notes in the in the versions of the books that you found. Why use that? What what does that kind of source material do for you? Yeah. Um you know that was something I kind of wasn't sure whether I should use or not. Um but well, as the project developed what I really wanted to do was to consider how these were received um as testimonies because testimony is something that is picked up on the other end, um, you know, a, a public story that's left in a in a in a drawer that's never shared, or a, a private story, sorry, that's um, locked away in a drawer, never shared or destroyed before anyone reads it. That's not testimony, um, but these were placed into the public domain. So, how did people respond to them? in real time was something that I was really interested in and I tried to uncover as much as I could. And I suppose one way of doing that was um, newspaper reviews was an easy way to do that or other reviews. Another thing would be letters to the author if there was a, a an archive, which often there wasn't, but in some cases there, there there were some letters to authors, maybe publishers' works again if there was a peer review of, of a text and so on. Um, but one of the things that I did come across then was the fact that a lot of these books were read by fellow revolutionaries when they were published um, and they were a very keen audience who were willing to scrutinize I suppose the, these questions so you would find um, copies of these books that have corrections written in on the margins or question marks or or uh, doubts um, and I think that's to be expected it's the civil war there's going to be all sorts of of, 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 of contesting um, responses and uh, debates around this and that that's part of this as well because by putting these stories into the public domain these uh, figures were they were taking a, a risk, and that's why they often um, ch- adopted these self-protective strategies. Um, but I, I, I think um, I remember that one of the first times that I came across marginalia in, in, that I thought was quite significant was um, in the National Library a copy of um, Charlie Dalton's with the Dublin Brigade, which is an early memoir from the end of the nineteen twenties, um, and the copy was donated by. Um, um, by William O'Brien into into the National Library, and he has you know notes throughout. Um, and one of the things that struck me was that there's a mention, a reference in the in the book to uh, one of our supporters. Um, so I think it was a case that one of our supporters helped us um, um, during this period. And this would have been um, in the context of of the um, War of Independence in Dublin. Um, but the uh, William Bryan, who had the copy, wrote in that the supporter was Jenny Wise Power, who then was a um, significant um, pro-treaty, um, one of the key, I suppose, women leaders on the pro-treaty side. But I thought it was quite interesting there that she her name hadn't been mentioned in the original 
yet the reader was reinserting it and particularly when we think of how women's activism was often uh, set aside and how we're somewhat trying to, to reinsert that um, and I wondered was it coincidence that it was the, the woman's name who wasn't, wasn't included that she was um, rendered anonymous I suppose in, in the published work. Um, so that was one example that I wanted to include but then there was others that I just thought added to that um there's a great um book called um ugly brew um by a, a well it's a pseudonym i think but jake win I've, I've never been able to get to the bottom of who who this was but it describes the, the events of dublin and the squad and then the, the later the civil war and um, but um i managed to get a copy of that on ABE books online, secondhand copy, um, and what was fascinating there was the the reader was quite sceptical of a lot of um, what had been written about, um, but I think that that was maybe a, an indication of the um, again what I said the, the risks that these individuals took, but oftentimes even though there were maybe attentive audiences, these books could be quite harshly. Um, criticised in reviews um, because of what they were doing that they, they, because of the fact that this was such a contentious topic and the women's work was dismissed as being you know uh, too clearly written by a woman this romance fiction you know um, other works that were um, these novelised <clears throat> self-portraits by revolutionary veterans were heavily criticised sometimes and um, for, uh, according to very stringent literary standards, whereas these weren't necessarily high class literature, and um, that wasn't the intention. They, these are testimonies to personal experiences, and um, but I suppose that was another um, way of silencing. If we think of all of the the processes of silencing that run through the book, that that's an aspect of it. Um, there's censorship, there's even excommunication from the Catholic Church, um, but there is heavy criticism from the, let's say, the literary elite and even the historical elite as a way of maybe silencing um, and marginalising some of these works. Um, so the, the marginalia was a way of maybe accessing the responses, um, and it's definitely something that I would I would do, do going forward because I think it's 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 really a fascinating way to get get an insight in terms of in terms of readers' reception of these works. So, in terms of basically where we find these kind of testimonies, I know you've done um, some work also on Ernie O'Malley, um, and he's quite a large figure in this kind of literature, right? Partly because partly because he is just a very good writer. Um, and he leaves Ireland after the Civil War, and that, in a way, becomes another kind of stereotype about the, the most radical people go into exile. And yet, even the people that you're reading, you know, that you talk about in the book that stay in Ireland, they seem to feel that they're also in a kind of internal exile or something, or they're domestically exiled. What does exile mean for these people? Like, can you be exiled if you're still if you're still at home? Yeah. No, that was something I was really interested in teasing out because that's a concept that's um, used in other civil war contexts as well. Um, and um, I studied Spanish actually at undergrad in the Spanish Civil War, and there's a, a, an important study um, on this idea of inner exile and that's, that's addressed in the Spanish context. Um, and we see it then running through a lot of these writings. So um, on the one hand, you do have high rates of emigration in the 1920s, um, both pro and anti-treaty veterans, particularly anti-treaty Republicans, felt that um, they didn't have the same economic advantages that they were maybe um, 
less likely to be hired for jobs because of their Republican convictions. So high levels of emigration. And I, I've traced this, so um, just going through the, the um, nominal roles, but a lot of these um, the, these patterns in the 1920s replicate patterns of emigration that had already been in place. That, that's the major areas that are affected by high rates of emigration are on the West Coast and the Western Seaboard and that have strong traditions, I suppose, of emigration previous to this. Um, and what what's worth mentioning here is that um, during this period, a lot of the publishers were actually based outside of Ireland, um, particularly in London and so on. And um, so in a way, th- these testimonies are being published in a diasporic context in, in some cases. Um, and there was maybe a perceived view that there was more freedom maybe outside of Ireland to, to address um, maybe some of these experiences and there was also a, a, actually a huge audience for these kind of writings um, in the UK um, but just back to the, the question of exile, I was interested in how exile functions as a, as a motif I suppose in these testimonies um, and this exile motif has a long-standing um I suppose it's, it's a, there's a long tradition of exile motif within the, the nationalist imagination. Um, but what, what, what's interesting about that exile motif is that in a way it was redemptive because during this period in the 1920s, early 1920s, the IRA actually banned emigration um, and initially um, veterans had to sign up for a, a foreign reserve list so that they could, they would still be, I suppose, available for duty when they, they left Ireland. And ultimately, the IRA had to, to set that aside, I think, by 1927 or 1928, because it had no way of, of controlling, I suppose, the, the huge numbers that were emigrating. But I think there was still, nevertheless, a stigma maybe around emigration or a, a shame around that. Yet this exile motif that went back um, for, for, for generations within the nationalist tradition was a way of overcoming that. But what's fascinating is that this exile motif isn't only in the accounts that appear outside of Ireland, but also in the works of of revolutionary veterans who remained in Ireland, um, and some of them, you know, self um, identified as exiles. Um, and I think if we think of after any conflict, one of the main dilemmas in the post conflict period is that return, that challenge of returning to civilian life, to a, a free war state, which is never going to be possible, you know, that these these are um, men and women who went through um, really strained circumstances um, during this, this conflict, and the return is always going to be um, very difficult. Um, there's also the, the question that comes up in terms of those who've been excommunicated from the Catholic Church, let's say, for their Republican convictions and can't even return to their local churches, um, to their local communities, or that there's a stigma around them. Um, so absolutely, there's this idea of what's referred to um, by some as, as spiritual exile, um, of inner exile, um, and maybe a, a difficulty in terms of adapting or in terms of... Um, grappling with the, the new status quo and partition is key to this as well um, that there are of course minorities on both sides of the borders border that are left behind that are, are mm-hmm. find themselves in a state that doesn't represent them necessarily and um, so I think that's another idea I suppose of, of exile um, that um, is part of the consequences of partition. So, so your book has obviously I mean has been very well received I think quite rightly so um, as the kind of dust settles on that now, 
where will you go next? Do you think you'll stay working in memory studies or what's next in terms of a research project? Yeah, so um, it's it's funny actually, Aidan, because I think when when you work on a book like this, you in a way by the time it comes out, you've already kind of um, you've already moved on in a year or two in terms of the research. But um, what I ha- what I have been doing, and I, I would love to follow up with the, a second book, is um, tracing um representations of the civil war across generations as well. Um, and I've, I've actually an article fully wrote maybe last summer, and I think it's out in the next few weeks, but going up right up to the present. Um, and I think what's fascinating is that even though the book is just about veteran testimonies, um, we see a, a really interesting dynamic if we take a hundred year scale, because um, there's this idea that there was a silence around the civil war, yet there are these silence breakers again and again and again who are addressing the civil war and often unaware of the fact that they are within this lineage of civil war silence breakers. So I think that's something that I'm really interested in. I'm, I'm fascinated too just by popular literature and I don't think it's something that maybe um, is looked at enough in historical studies, but um, how these uh, historical events are replayed again and again in in um, in popular fiction. Um, and I suppose that we have a really strong culture of that, of a, of a reading culture um, in Ireland. And it's something to, to I think, to uh, address and even to celebrate the fact that there, there, there is such an interest um, among the general public. Um, so that's something that I, I, I um, will be working on, I'd say, for the next years. But then another project I've been working on is totally... Um, unrelated um is looking at the the Gaelic revival in Springfield Massachusetts and that's something I've probably been working on um for about 10 years at this stage so I kind of um jumped um project um so I'm I'm hoping to go back to that but what what I'm trying to grapple with actually is um I'm writing I suppose a a biography of a, a relatively minor figure who was a Gaelic poet from Springfield, Massachusetts, who was originally from Kerry, um, and his attempts to create an urban Gaeltacht in Springfield. Um, and I'm trying to, I suppose, use his story as, as a way of opening up um, and writing a, a case study of the, of the community. Um, so that's, that's what I'm working on. And, so, and it's a really fascinating project because it's very much a history from below. Um, you're, you, it's trying to get as many um, source materials as you can. And this is somebody, again, who had no papers there's no archives um so how do you i suppose reconstruct a history of a of a community um that doesn't have i suppose that the access even to 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 um the, the idea that they, these are stories that uh, would be ending up in an archive so that's um what i'm working on um at the moment so i'm i'm hoping to get get more time maybe this year to 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 get working on that so it's quite it's quite a different project but in a way I suppose it it ties together with a lot of what I've been doing in terms of the history from below um looking I suppose at the working class histories and and again questions of gender how do you write a a male historical um biography um but also um I suppose bring up um the 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 experiences of I suppose um the many women involved in in these movements as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, like how do you, how do you avoid just kind of deifying another man? Like it's always a risk. It, it does seem that like memory studies has become quite popular as a as a kind of as a subfield within Irish studies. Is that just because of what we've been going through for the last ten years and sort of going through a decade of commemorations that is just really pregnant with memory? Or is there some? Do you think there's other some other reason why this has become a really like thriving active field? 
Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of different reasons. I think it's it's um, an international trend, and um, I, I'm always keen to look at international studies. Um, I think within the Irish context, there's definitely been a, a huge opening up around memory and trauma um, in relation to the institutions um, and in terms of um, how could it be that so much abuse was ongoing in Irish society for so long and unacknowledged and how... how um, as a society and how I suppose as academics do, do we um, work in, to maybe redress some of these um, if, if, we, if we want to call it the, the marginalization of memory and how, and, um, and how there has been a response to that and there's various uh, writings now um, coming up uh, or being published from um, those who are victims in the institutions and so on so I think that's probably um, responsible for, for some of that shift and there's some really interesting work ongoing. And then, as you said, there's the decade of commemorations that, that's finishing up um, next year. So there's been a huge emphasis on uh, revisiting um, the events of 100 years ago. Um, and also, I suppose, critiquing how it's been commemorated and how the commemoration is, is um, so political and tied to contemporary events. And there's, that's that's really probably emerged as a, as a subfield within historical study and maybe that wasn't studies and maybe that wasn't the case um a number of years ago even though it, it has and it, um, I think as well it really emerged from French historians who were much more pioneering in terms of, of memory studies and in terms of the First World War um so I, I think it's a it's an interesting field I, I I do think sometimes with the memory studies trauma studies that um it, for me anyway um I, I suppose I've, I read up on a lot of the the recent research because I'm I'm really fascinated by it. But I think it is something that um is challenging and that um when when using these concepts for me anyway, I always like want to make sure that these concepts are actually backed up with very specific examples or where we see these ideas um working. Um and I would say too that sometimes um some of the material let's say internationally um wouldn't necessarily be as relevant. Um, to to the work I do, so I would often um, read works that wouldn't necessarily fit in, and, and maybe that's important too to kind of look at things that 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 you might not necessarily agree with. Um, I know one of the, the works that really helped me with this project on on testimony was um, a, a U.S. scholar called Tally Cal um, uh, Worlds of Heart. Um, but for for me anyway, what was interesting there was that she was looking at testimony from Vietnam, also from um, women who experienced domestic violence, also from the Holocaust, that idea of, of the, I suppose, the, the um, politics of testimony. But the, the emphasis on the political, I suppose, was central to her study. And maybe that's something that isn't the case in mainstream memory studies, trauma studies works, that there's often maybe a, a depoliticization associated with with, um, with trauma. So I think that's something um, to, to bear in mind. But um, I think this field in terms of memory studies will, will, will continue to, to, to grow. And I think it is a field that should spark debate. And I think that's a, that's something that's very healthy and that people can bring in different approaches to it. And ultimately, it's just a, a slightly different way of addressing the events of the past, not, not as focused on what occurred as much as thinking about how all of these memories are mediated and processed through so many different forms um, and ultimately that what we receive um, through the memory is something of a, a mediated version of, of the original and whether we'll ever access uh, fully the, the, if we want to call it the bare bone facts of the past 
is another question um and maybe maybe that's what we need to move towards that idea that that history doesn't always give us straightforward answers yeah i mean there's there's so many fascinating questions here uh, that we could start probably spend years talking about um thank you so much for this really great conversation um spiritual wounds trauma testimony and the irish civil war is out now with irish academic press and is very much worth reading thanks Shifra. thanks so much aiden